Well, good morning. Welcome to my vacation, which ended yesterday, but I'm having trouble getting over it myself. You might wonder, Tom, after all these years, would it not be possible for you to to come back from vacation and not preach? And that would be a good idea. But uh, in laying out this series, I noted that this passage fell on this Sunday. And this is a really tough passage, and I didn't see how I could leave it to a young, inexperienced (laughs) pastor, you know, to do this. I mean... So don't try this at home. This takes a lot of practice and work. I want to begin with a question that is asked today in our society, and the question is, what is the place of the Jewish people at the present time in God's purposes? Are they still God's chosen people or not? Um, Are they lost without Christ, or are they in a different category because they were given promises and they were chosen and blessed in various ways? This became an issue, actually, in the the Senate just a couple of months ago when they were interviewing someone for a position. I can't remember the person, but the person is a a Christian who had written something uh, related to the college that he went to that said that Jews and Muslims are lost without Christ. And Senator Bernie Saunders was quite incensed by this thought and said that that's un-American for a person to hold that position, apparently blissfully unaware that that has been the position of Christians down through the centuries up until the present time, that people, all people are lost without Christ. Now, Paul answers that question here, at least in outline form. It's really a question, what is the place of the Jews in God's purposes? It's a question that dogged his whole ministry. It followed him throughout his ministry. We have here the earliest book that he wrote, the book of Galatians, Right after his first missionary journey, we also have the book of Romans in the New Testament, which was written later in his ministry and as more mature form of his theology, expressed more fully. And that whole letter, the book of Romans, circles around this question, what is the place of the Jewish people and God's purposes? But here in Galatians, he's dealing for the first time with a real-life problem in this church that was in southern Turkey. Apparently, teachers had come purporting to be from the church in Jerusalem and from the apostles there, and they were telling the Galatian Christians that they needed to add something to their faith in order to complete their relationship with God. They didn't deny, these teachers, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus' death on the cross was important to bring us to God, but they said, in order to complete that relationship, you need to begin to observe the law, that is, to undergo circumcision, if you're a male, the covenant sign, and then to begin to observe the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws and sacrifices and so forth. And Paul saw that whole idea as a a threat to the very fabric of the Christian message as he preached it, the true gospel of Jesus. And, And I need to tell you up front that this is an incredibly difficult passage, and what makes it difficult is the form that it takes. Paul simply presents a well-known story from the Old Testament, at least well-known to his hearers, and he says in verse 24, now this, this story, may be interpreted allegorically. And that word allegory has caused conniptions throughout the history of the church for a lot of reasons, but it probably didn't cause trouble to the people who read it. It causes more trouble now because of something that developed in the church about 200 years after that, after Christ. 
there was a teacher in North Africa named Origen, and Origen used, uh, developed what he called allegorical interpretation. And what Origen would do is he would take a passage and he would note the particulars of the passage, the different individuals involved, and the event that is being uh, narrated. And he would use that as a jumping-off point to talk about all kinds of things. He didn't regard the original, the literal meaning of the text, as being important at all. That was just kind of to be discarded. But he would jump off to talk about whatever it is he wanted to talk about with all kinds of fanciful meetings, meanings. Now, it was that, that viewpoint was eventually um, condemned in the early church. Uh, it's the reason why, if you've ever heard of Origen, he's never called Saint Origen because he wasn't sainted later uh, when people began to do that. Now, um, when you read this passage, you might think uh, by a quick reading that that's exactly what Paul is doing. He relates a story, and then he, he makes an application, he makes a, tells the meaning of the story, but when he does that, it's like you can't figure out how he got to that meaning exactly. And um, you might think Paul's doing the same thing, so let me give you just a brief bit of background. Number one, Paul was a rabbi. He was trained by the greatest first century rabbi named Gamaliel the Elder, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and is referred to in the New Testament. Um, the method of interpretation that he learned, he used here, at least the elements of it, he would have heard at the feet of Gamaliel. These would have been understood, even though it's odd to us today, it would have been understood by those in theological circles who were discussing the Bible in the way that Paul was using. Another thing you have to notice is that nowhere in the passage does Paul imply that the original meaning of the passage is unimportant. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't misuse it. What he really does is he interprets the passage we'll think about in the book of Genesis in light of how the characters developed in the rest of Old Testament history up until the time of Christ. It's like he interprets it in light of redemptive history, you might say, as the Bible unfolded. And another thing that's helpful to understand is that most interpreters conclude that the reason Paul chose this passage and used this method of interpretation was that it was one that his opponents used in Galatia. It was a passage and a story that they applied, though they applied it differently. Their application would have been, listen, Sarah and Abraham had children and a multitude of children. They're the Jewish people today. If you want to be a part of the Jew, of the people of God, you have to join them. Now, it's true that that's been fulfilled in Christ. He has come and kept the, and uh, taken the curse of the law and all that. But if you want to complete your relationship, you have to become a part of those people whom God recognized in the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish people. And so what he did is he took the exact same passage and he interpreted it in light of redemptive history, and he said that it focused on the God's fulfillment in Christ and tells us something different than these people were teaching. Now, there are three parts to the answer or to the passage are very simple. First, Paul relates the original story, and then he gives the meaning of the story, and then he makes an application for today. So first, the story. Paul begins by briefly recounting a passage, or actually a series of chapters in the book of Genesis. This is found in chapter 16 through 21 of Genesis. And it's the story of Abraham's two wives, Sarah, his wife for the vast majority of his life, his first wife, and Hagar, a slave woman whom he took as life as wife later. And he summarizes in three verses the, the, the subject of the chapters that he wants to think about. And here's what he says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... 
Do you not listen to the law? He's speaking to his opponents who have used this passage. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, in the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about Abraham because he figures very prominently in uh, the unfolding story of the New Testament. He's kind of the fountainhead out of which everything starts. It's to Abraham, this Middle Eastern man in about 2150 BC, that God gave a specific set of promises, like a promise that has many facets to it, including the very important one, I will give you a multitude of descendants. In fact, God takes him in Genesis 15 out to look at the stars. He says, look at the stars of the sky and try to count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And so this promise is what is kind of key to the whole rest of the nature of the promises, because there's not going to be land, territory, a kingdom, kings, and a final seed, the Messiah, if these people don't come into existence, but Abraham and Sarah have no children. As time goes on, God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, listen, I still don't have a child and I'm getting older. And if I don't have a son, then a slave in my household is going to inherit everything that I have. And God again gives him the promise, I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. Now, at this point, time is going on. Abraham and Sarah are getting older. In fact, Abraham's approaching 90 and Sarah is 80 past the age of childbearing, and the promise hasn't been fulfilled. And at that point, Sarah concocts a plan to get the promised heir. She gives Abraham her female servant, Hagar, and she says, take her as a second wife. And when she bears a child, she says, it may be that I will obtain children by her. She was going to adopt the child, and it would be a legitimate son of Abraham, though not of Sarah, and she would adopt him, and that would be the promised heir. Now, this sounds to us slightly immoral today to do that, and by present standards it is. However, you need to note, it's very similar to the practice of a couple, particularly a more wealthy couple, who want to have a child, but the woman can't for some reason. Either she can't conceive, or if she does, she can't carry the child to term. And so they uh, hire a woman and pay her to be a surrogate mother, in which case she is impregnated by the man, and we do that now in vitro, so it doesn't require that there be any physical relationship between them. And then when she has the child, the original couple adopt the child, or the woman does, and uh, they have a child. So um, today that would not require physical relations, but obviously in Abraham and Sarah's time, it did. So what happens is Abraham takes this woman, Hagar, as a wife. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant, has a child, and they name him Ishmael. Now, after his birth, God clarifies, which should have been clear to Abraham from the beginning, that the promise was given to he and his wife, and the promised seed is going to come through him and his legitimate wife, Sarah. That's what the intention was from the beginning. Now, what happens is, after that, as Ishmael is growing up, Sarah becomes pregnant, and she also has a child in her advanced age who is named Isaac. And he is the promised offspring through whom the whole promise is going to be fulfilled. Eventually, as these two boys are growing up, 
Sarah observes Ishmael, who would have been older by 10 years or more, mocking her child, Isaac, and she becomes angry and tells Abraham, you need to send this woman and her child away. And God at that point tells Abraham that Ishmael will become also a large people group, will become nations and kings will descend from him, just like uh, Isaac, but he is not the promised seed. Ishmael, by the way, is considered the ancestor of the Arabic people who are, from ancient times, from the book of Genesis, the traditional enemies of Israel, who are the descendants of Isaac. So the, the basic idea is Abraham had two sons. One was born of a free woman, Sarah. He was named Isaac. And one was born of a slave woman and named Ishmael. The one born of the free woman was born through promise, it says. The one born of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now, those words, according to the flesh, are important to think about for a minute because they aren't referring to an act of immorality. It's not referring to the fact that Abraham had to take this woman as a wife and have relationship relations with her in order for this child to be born. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring to something different from that. The fact that Hagar bore a child was not a supernatural event. It was an event that was brought about by Abraham taking as a wife a young woman of childbearing age. It was a natural event, whereas the birth according to promise was a supernatural event. It required the direct intervention of God in order for this child to be born because Sarah and Abraham were past that age when children are born. So the the words of according to the flesh are referring to mere human effort. It's referring to the fact that this was a humanly devised plan that Sarah came up with in order to get the promised child that God seemed incapable or unwilling of producing. They were seeking to help God out, and they got Ishmael. Now, that's the story. It's what follows that becomes interesting. Paul takes the story and he explains its meaning. And here's what he says. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now, you, you read that and, and um, just to understand what it says, he simply takes the two women and the two children that they bear and he contrasts them. And he puts together certain things that unfold in history. You've got Hagar, the slave woman. She represents the Mosaic Covenant, which was the covenant that the descendants of Isaac, through his son Jacob, entered into with God in which he chose them to be his people. They met at Mount Sinai and what is the Arabian Peninsula, and there at the foot of the mountain, they received the covenant that God gave to them. Hagar represents the Mosaic covenant sealed at Sinai. Her children represent children for slavery, and then relates that to present Jerusalem, and he ends up with the idea, it's referring to the Judaism of Paul's day. He says, Hagar represents the Jewish people today apart from Christ. 
Then on the other side, he says, Sarah represents the Abrahamic covenant. That is the covenant that was entered into long before Moses with Abraham and his descendants. It represents the covenant that is fulfilled in Christ. It represents Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem is built. It represents children for freedom, the Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly Zion. And thus it it refers to believers of the present day. That's what he comes down to. These two women represent two different things. The Judaism of our day, Paul says, and the believers in Christ of our day. Now, when you think that through, you say, what? I mean, how in the world did he get there? And I had to do some real digging to figure this out. And when I saw it, I was really amazed. The problem is, it would take way too long to explain all the connections that he made. It was written, designed for a rabbinic scholar who was used to using the Old Testament in a certain way, and I'm convinced they would have followed him to a T. In fact, there are writings among the rabbis that preceded the time of Jesus that at least refer to elements of the interpretation that Paul gives to the passage. But let me just briefly recap the point that he makes. In the passage, I stopped before he uses a passage from the Old Testament that is meant to back up what he just said. It's meant to back up the whole thing about Hagar, Mount Sinai, present Jerusalem, Jewish people in bondage. And Sarah, Mount Zion, you know, heavenly Jerusalem, people who believe in Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 27. For it is written, he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 54, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud for you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now what he does is he picks a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, which to us is extremely obscure. But it happens to be in that one part of the book, approximately chapter 51 through 57, that in which Sarah is referred to the only place in the Old Testament where Sarah is named outside of the book of Genesis. He he picks this one passage, and he refers to a verse within it that talks about Jerusalem through the centuries is going to be found in two different states. At some times it will be barren, and at other times it will be fruitful. That's what the meaning of the passage is in its original setting. And uh, he relates it to women who were either barren or fruitful. And the most notable example of that is the person referred to in the broader passage, which is Sarah and the story of Hagar. These two women represent Jerusalem at different stages of its existence. There were times, like during the exile when Jerusalem was abandoned, when it was barren. There were times, like during the restoration and during the reign of David and times like that, when Jerusalem was extremely fruitful, when people walked with God and loved him. And he understands this verse as the lens through which he applies his story, that there's a difference between barrenness and fruitfulness, one major theme of the Old Testament, that it's a difference shown in these original women who produced the promised seed and the seed that wasn't promised. Now, he's obviously in the passage in Isaiah 54 relating Sarah to the desolate, barren woman who eventually bears many children, and Hagar is the one who has a husband but is impoverished in the end. And um, 
That motif, like I said, is found elsewhere in the Old Testament, but Sarah and Hagar are the most prominent example. And when I understood that this is what he's using, this idea of barrenness and fruitfulness and and where the seed go and what they do, the descendants, and that one became a great nation without God and one became a great nation that produced the Messiah, well, I understood then uh, why it is that in the first century the gospel had such an incredible impact for a brief period of time, some 40 or 50 years, among the Jewish people. I mean, it says in the beginning of the book of Acts, or short way into it, Acts chapter 6, it says that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, what it's saying is that people like Paul were taking the scriptures and they were using it in ways that the Jewish people would understand, particularly those who were their leaders, and they would understand it. And many of them came to faith in Christ during that initial period Of course, eventually it uh, became hardened and closed off. But what uh, it's saying here is that this was what God intended to show from the beginning through this story and how these people developed throughout biblical history up until the coming of Christ. Now, rather than chasing down all the details of of, uh, Paul's presentation, it would be better for us to focus on his main point. And his main point is this. Abraham, from the very beginning, has two kinds of children— They're illustrated, first of all, in Ishmael and Isaac. But it goes much deeper than that. He says, essentially, there are two kinds of children of uh, Abraham. The first group are natural descendants of Abraham. And the second group are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Now, take the natural descendants on this side. Um, They are born into slavery, just like Hagar and in this case, slavery to sin. They are born under the covenant of Mount Sinai, which is characterized by the command, do this and live. They live under the basic covenant of works that says if you do the right things, God will accept you in the end. They are the natural children of Abraham. That is, they bear his genetic code down through the generations because they are descended from him, but they are not his spiritual offspring. They are children born according to the flesh. Mere physical descendants who can trace their lineage back to Abraham. Now, on the other hand, he says there are spiritual descendants of Abraham. These are born like the child born to Sarah. They are born supernaturally. They're born against the normal custom of nature to a woman long past childbearing age. And they're born due to the direct intervention of God in this case. They're born through the promise. He says in the passage, born according to promise. And these spiritual descendants of Abraham are those who share his faith in the promise. Now, I want you to note, natural descendants, merely physical descendants, spiritual descendants, those who share his faith, and the spiritual descendants fall into two categories, is what he's basically saying. There are physical descendants of Abraham who also share his faith. And then there are people who are not natural descendants of Abraham, but they share his faith. The physical descendants of Abraham who share his faith are Jewish people, like the Apostle Paul, who believe in Jesus. They um, are living proof that there are children of promise within the descendants of Abraham. And uh, then there are those who have no physical descent from Abraham. They are not born from Abraham through Sarah. They are not natural children, but they are the spiritual children, that is, Gentiles, who believe in Jesus Christ. 
So you've got among the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who are natural descendants, Jewish people who believe in Jesus, and you have those who are not natural descendants, Gentiles like I am, who believe in Jesus. And the vast majority of us in this room, perhaps all, fall in that last category, those who are merely spiritual descendants. That is, we share the faith of Abraham in the promised seed and in the God who raises the dead, as the New Testament says, and uh, that's what we are. Now, two kinds of children, natural and spiritual, two kinds of spiritual children, natural slash spiritual and spiritual only. Let's note something about these spiritual descendants of Abraham, both kinds. First, the pastor tells us they are born supernaturally. And what that means is that it requires the direct intervention of God to bring them to birth. That's why Jesus said to a rabbi of his generation, a member of the ruling council, Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. How can you be a teacher of the law and not understand this? You must be born by the direct spiritual intervention of God in bringing about the new birth inside of you. Now, this is obvious in the case of Isaac, physically even. His mother was 80, his father was 90. In natural human terms, he had no possibility of life. And what happened is God intervened, and like that, Jesus says, all who are born into the kingdom of God must be born of the Spirit. He uses the same phrase that is used in this passage, born of the Spirit. Note, the New Testament words of Jesus are, are in the New Testament, the words of Jesus are an application of this basic idea uh, in, in a similar setting. A new birth by the intervention of God is required to bring a spiritual descendant into being. That's why Jesus said, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So first of all, a spiritual descendant of Abraham, one who shares his faith, must be born supernaturally, have a new birth. And then um, secondly, you must be born through promise. That is, the spiritual existence The existence of such people is not just by natural generation. It happens as a result of God's promise. It's not a natural uh, process. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. I will multiply your descendants. As many as the stars of the sky, as many as the sand of the seashore, so shall your descendants be. And that is fulfilled in the physical descendants of Abraham who believe in him and remain as part of the people of God and the spiritual descendants who don't share his physical genetic code. And lastly, he says, the spiritual children are born into freedom. That's the third characteristic. Supernatural, children of promise, and they're born into freedom. Freedom from what? Well, it's freedom from the law. It's freedom from the covenant that said, do this and you shall live. It's freedom to obey God by the power of the Spirit. It's not free to do whatever they want, but free to obey God by the Spirit and the grace of Christ. And the reason they are set free is that Christ fulfilled the law in their place. He kept it. He was obedient where they were disobedient. And because having done that and been the perfect sacrifice, he took our sins on himself. He took the curse of the law in the place of those who had broken it. And for those two reasons, anyone who trusts in Christ becomes a part of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And by faith, when a person comes to Christ and exchanges his or her unrighteousness for the righteous character and the saving death of Christ and and has that as a gift, they're, they're set free. 
Now, we have to note from this explanation, the ones who are only physical are regarded as not having the promises. They're represented by Hagar, obviously, but Abraham had many physical descendants from Isaac as well, who never believed. We read of some of those in the New Testament, some in the Old Testament. They're physically descendants of Abraham, but they don't share his faith. They have no supernatural origin. They have no promise fulfilling freedom in Christ, producing role in God's purposes. In other words, those people are in no different place than the Gentiles. So the physical descendants of Abraham today who only since about 400 B.C. are called the Jews. That's when they took that name. They're in the same condition before God as the Gentiles. And that's what Paul argues at length in the book of Romans. He just presents it here when he's first confronted with it through the teaching of these false teachers who are saying, you've got to go back and begin to observe the law. He says the law is a form of bondage. It says, do this and you shall live. If you want to have God's favor, you have to keep this perfectly. And that's why he says in Romans chapter 3, having laid out for three chapters that the Jews have broken God's law and the Gentiles have broken God's law, even though they didn't have it in written form, they had it in conscience. Both are sinful. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Now, why did he ask that question? Well, he asked that question because people were wondering, having listened to everything he said, What's the advantage of being a Jew? Because they had been taught that it was being children of Abraham. That's what mattered. You were physically a descendant of Abraham. You received the covenant sign, and that gave you an in with God. He said, are we any better off? And his answer is no, not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, under bondage to sin. And here's the point. The promise is given to Abraham were never given to the physical descendants of Abraham who didn't share his faith. They were given to Abraham and his physical descendants, but specifically to the physical descendants for whom their circumcision was followed by what it was meant to picture was entire heart dedication to God. Those who believed the promise were those who received the promise. Well, Abraham's faith in the God who raises the dead uh, is what they shared in. They were the spiritual children. But if they were apart from Christ, they're in no different position than the Gentiles are. No better, no worse. They're still in the position of being cut off from God because they don't share the faith of their forefather, Abraham. And don't add to it. None of this, the Jews killed Christ, garbage. The scripture knows nothing of that. It doesn't hold following generations responsible for the sin of certain leaders at one point in time. Uh, Scripture doesn't understand that concept. What it means is that apart from grace, the Jews have no advantages based on their birth, their ethnic background, their circumcision, their law-keeping. The only advantage they have that Paul mentions in Romans is they possess the Scriptures. They have the scriptures, which means they have in Genesis chapter 12, the promise in its pristine original form. They possess that. They could, if they paid attention to it and their hearts were opened by the Spirit, they could follow through as Paul and others did and arrive at Christ. But that's the advantage they have. They also, I would say, possess from Romans chapter 11, 
a promise of large-scale conversion to Christ at the time of his return. But even though many think God will be present at the marriage feast of the Lamb, they have no advantage in their birth. The promises were only given to those who shared the faith of Abraham. Now, the story of Sarah and Abraham and the interpretation that he gives to it here, natural seed, spiritual seed, two kinds of spiritual seed, those of us who are natural descendants of Abraham and those who aren't, but in either case share his faith, that interpretation leads to an application that he makes, beginning in verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. The application he makes is relevant to all Gentiles who believe in Jesus, because this was written to Gentile Christians in Galatia, and and he says that if you trust in Christ as your sin-bearer and Savior, you are the offspring of Abraham, children of promise. The very ones God had in mind when he gave the promise originally of redemption, that he would extend to all the families of the earth. Remember the promise? In you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so, based on that, he then gives a command. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, again, that's kind of obscure to us, but it's simply a quotation from uh, Genesis chapter 16, where Sarah sees Ishmael mocking her son Isaac, and she says to Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son. And he's making an application here to his readers. He's telling the Galatians who are beginning to listen to these false teachers, they are on the verge of accepting the law and saying, okay, we need to be circumcised, begin to keep the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws and all the different things that were found in the Old Testament. And he's saying, throw out the law. That is no longer necessary. Don't go back to the shadows when you have the reality in Christ. Don't add works to faith. Now you might think, well, what relevance is that to me if I'm a believer? I I understand the gospel. I've trusted in Christ. Well, a few weeks ago I spoke with a man that came to Christ a number of years ago here at the church, and we were talking about his faith. He said, I know that Jesus died for me, but every once in a while I feel like I'm not doing enough for God. And I thought... Everyone feels that who has faith in Christ. There are times as we're going along where we feel like, you know, God would probably like me better, accept me more if I did more things. Well, the accepting me more is not true. The acceptance is found in Christ and what he did. And like this man said to me, um, then I remembered that Jesus paid it all and there's nothing I can add. And I thought, you just summarized in two sentences the nature of the Christian life. The Christian life is growing in our understanding of what it means that Jesus died for our sins. And the, the uh, magnitude of how that changes our position before God and our understanding of how he wants us to live, that's the nature of the Christian life. The belief that we can add something to the finished work of Christ is so rooted in the fallen human heart that the gospel is counterintuitive to us. We're trained from childhood, and any understanding we have of the law tells us we have to do things in order to be accepted. The gospel says Christ did what was necessary for you to be accepted. He did keep the law. And then he died in the place of those who have broken the law. Now, thank God we can accept it at a point in time. 
we can apply it to ourselves and experience freedom from sin, freedom from the guilt of sin. But as we move through life, we're going to need to grow in that and reaffirm that and grow in that confidence until it grows up into the full assurance of faith. And that's why he says this, cast out the slave woman. It's a direct application. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to trusting in something that you have to do in order for God to accept you. And he adds a final word in verse 27 with one important difference. The final word is, so, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He he underlines that it's uh, slavery versus freedom. And, And the reason he does that is the rest of the book is going to lay out what it means to be free in Christ. He's going to move beyond the whole topic of justification through faith, which is what really up until this point the book is about. And he's going to talk about what freedom does for us, what it does in us. And he notes, you were born to be free, free in Christ, to live free from guilt and fear and shame. That's the inheritance of the children of God. Throw out the law. Stop thinking there's something I have to do in order for God to accept me and come to God in the only way that he accepts, which is through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, if only we could rejoice as we ought to in this truth. If only we could bow our hearts in such a way as to fully grasp what it means that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You sent your Son, who by his active obedience kept the law perfectly so that he could be the sinless one who went to the cross. And then, having done that and qualified himself to bear sins, he became the one who took upon himself the curse that the law brings on everyone who breaks it. And we must count ourselves among those who have broken it. We thank you that that's true and that we are in Christ when we trust in him and in him alone we are set free. Fill our hearts with a sense of confidence in this that allows us to move through life and relate to people differently. We pray this in Jesus' name.